This is ground control to Major Tom. We're um, we're doing Australian David Bowie. Welcome back, John. Never could get the hang of first days, you slag. I'm about to meet the universe's worst battle robots. What, you mean to tell me aliens exist? I'll never forget the day them slags blew up the earth. Blow my nut, you have. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. leopard, leopard, leopard. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard, your A to Z of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm Mark Stedman. And the secret is to bang the rocks together, guys. I'm John Hickman, and uh, haven't you read my junk mail? I'm Danny Smith, and I didn't prepare for this bit. <laughs> We're into the M's now, which, uh, that's, that's slightly Zafody, it's fine. Um, but it means we're halfway through the alphabet. Um, seems like only yesterday we were talking about advanced vectoid stabilisis. Anyway, uh, on with the show, and a graduate of Cruxwan University. Magic Thighs is a philosopher and a friend of Room Fondle. Uh, not a euphemism. In episode three, we covered the <laughs> amalgamated union of philosophers, <laughs> philosophers, sages, luminaries, and other thinking persons, of which Magic Thighs is a member. Uh, he maintains that the search for ultimate truth is the uh, inalienable prerogative of your work in thinkers. Um, John, do you agree? Sorry, can I just cut in and say I've never heard that pronounced out loud? I hadn't either. <clears throat> Magic thighs. The, the way I read, it's just a squiggle that means that guy's name, so I've never yep. never heard it pronounced out loud. <laughs> it's brilliant. another one that's that really, it's, it's great for radio. Yeah. <laughs> Magic thighs. I, I, I read it as ma- ma- magic thesi or something like that as well. Like Danny mm-hmm. says, it's it's just it's just a jumble of letters, and you go, oh, that's the other one. Mm-hmm. There's two of them. It's the one that's not Vroom Fondle or Vroom Frondel. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, John, yeah. is he is he right about the search for um, ultimate truth? Um, so uh, th- 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 being the inalienable prerogative of working thinkers. Oh yeah. Um. I- how do you how do you how do you take that as 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 meaning? Because the the way you delivered it, uh, slightly different to what I was thinking. So, um, it sounds to me like there's a there's some sort of uh, almost unionized. Well, th- th- this this is in in the book, isn't it? Um, there is some sort of attempt to unionize the uh, the production of knowledge and uh, to to control who can and can't be part of it. But you kind of put it across more like it was. Um, less people in the ivory tower and more like everybody. So I'm I'm intrigued as to what your take is now. Yeah, well, the uh, I mean, just going from the the reading from the the radio play, um, mm. he especially was quite uh, in his delivery was quite blue collar. Yeah, um, because he's the one who's going. You are quite definitely here as representatives of the amalgamated union of philosophers, sages, luminaries, and other professional thinking persons, mm-hmm. and we want this machine off. And we want it off now. And it's it's that kind of you know foreman, um, factory foreman, probably uh, a, a rep of, of of his union. Um, and it's, it's so it's it's that you know that's his kind of thing. It's uh, the uh, the inalienable prerogative of your working thinkers. Is, yes, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, clock off by five. And uh, thank you very much. I ain't got the tools on a van. Sorry. Do, do we? Do we not think that this joke's a little bit classic? Like the 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 joke. The joke is. That uh, isn't it funny that working class people would think about philosophy? Is that not how we're oh, taking it? I oh, think blimey. that might be an overreading of the performance, right? It's, it's more. Uh, it's yeah. I, I, 
I get what I get what you're saying though, Dan. That does kind of make sense. So, it, it, but it's not. I, yeah, I don't think it was set as being a, a kind of a way of saying, well, working class people wouldn't talk about philosophy. But it's just a way of talking about the idea that this uh, has become a a trade in a sense, and and something where once you start organ- organizing a trade like that, you might get um, a bit of workplace protection going on that would uh, that would lead to this sort of thing. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, but my my kind of coming back into it um as a line is slightly framed by my recent experiences with the with the academy as someone who's left um thinking for a living <laughs> <laughs> which is um a slightly slightly strange idea which is again it's almost like a protectionism as well so like um there's the thing which um stop me if i've mentioned this on this podcast before but uh, i was able to sign passport applications and then oh, the day yes. that I stopped being a university lecturer, I couldn't. Um, and then um, I, I, I continue to have the same brain that I, that I have. But somebody messaged me the other day and went, we've got this thing and we're going to pay someone to do it. Um, who's, who's the best person who'd like you to do this? And I was like, well, I'll, I'll do it and you, <laughs> you can pay me. And they're like, yeah, but you don't work for a university anymore, so you don't count. I was like, oh, um, I haven't lost the skills. I can still you, do the yeah. things. Yeah, but it, the, the, so thinking for, thinking for a living is a very, very, very protected system already. Were they like, we don't need a craven capitalist. We want someone that's working for the good of the world. <laughs> no, they just they just wanted me, but with paperwork. It's like it's like when you buy a dog down the pub, <laughs> and they go like, oh, yeah, it's a breed, and you're like, oh, that experience we all have. Got any paperwork? Yeah. And they're like, well, no, hasn't got any paperwork, mate. <laughs> um, uh, so my, my my cat came from uh, a cat shelter in Quinton, and she's clearly, as well as being uh, a, a comedy character in her own right, um, she is clearly a breed cat. But because she doesn't come with any paperwork, she's no longer a breed cat because she's essentially not a bona fide gentleman. Um, <clears throat> she's not a fancy boy anymore. She's just she now counts as a moggy, which is great for pet insurance if you take pet insurance out because then she doesn't come with pedigree stuff when we got the puppy um the, the puppy's dad is actually like a, a fully paperworked up pug right and it's got like a lineage and stuff and um the, the person that we got it from was like do you want to do you want to see the papers i was like what do you mean papers and she explained like that like they have official certificates yeah. i'm like you don't need a certificate to be a dog. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm pretty sure you just have to be not any other animal. He had a certificate for being a very good boy. <laughs> and uh, now then, uh, on to what I think might be my favourite character in the series. Uh, I think I haven't said that about anyone else. One of the many major problems with governing people is that of whom you get to do it, or rather, of who manages to get people to let them to do it to them. And so we find a succession of galactic presidents who so much enjoy the fun and palaver of being in power that they very rarely notice that they're not. And somewhere in the shadows behind them, who? Who can possibly rule if no one who wants to can be allowed to? That man lives in a shack. He has a cat he calls the Lord. He enjoys the odd drink, the odd smoke, and not very much else. He seemingly makes decisions that affect the entire galaxy. Uh, and in the radio series, he's voiced by Stephen Moore, who also plays the whale. And uh, I think there's a good deal in common between both characters. Danny, do you see what I'm getting at? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Every time you're going to ask me that, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Especially if I've talked for seven minutes straight. Uh, yeah. It's always more fun. Um, in a lot of ways, it's then, one of our best jokes is Mark asks a question and we all go, no. <laughs> but what I'm going to talk is, about is this. Yeah, I, 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 spend, I spend an hour writing the script and gathering all the topics and trying to think of really good questions. And then, uh, and then my <laughs> sure. co-hosts come along and just take a big shit all over it. Yeah, this sure. is like that. Like that. <laughs> Sure, sure. It's nice to find a rhythm about halfway through. It's nice that we found. <laughs> so, uh, um, the, yeah. The, the, uh, okay, there is a kind of innocence about them, and there is kind of a a projection of greater truths onto someone that's quite simple and innocent as a thematic device, I feel. But it is goes, that what we... Yes, absolutely, you, but I think it goes beyond innocence. They're both almost completely... I don't know if inured is the right word, um, but they're, they are completely s- d- separate and devoid of any knowledge of the world in which they exist. I'm not saying that there's an actual connection between, you know, a, a real well-thought-out connection between um, Stephen Moore having played both characters, but I think there's a there is a nice common thread in that both of them appear in the world and, you know, one of them, the world impacts on him and the other one has impact on the world, but neither really know what they're doing, what anything means. And I think that's quite interesting. So what I, because obviously it's been a while since I read uh, Hitchhikers, but I seem to remember the man in the shack. The only reference he makes to running the universe is that people turn up, ask him questions, and then uh, he answers mm. and they leave. Mm-hmm. Right. So how how contextual are these questions? How much um, or, uh delivery are they putting into these these questions? And if they do, aren't they the guys that are running the world? If they go, oh, right, this bad planet is invading a nice good planet, should we defend them? Mm-hmm. His answer is obviously going to be yes, but if he says like some good planet is is invading a bad planet, he's going to go no, that's bad. Ah, so it's all in the framing of of the question. That's interesting. So aren't aren't the advisors the ones that are really running the world? And isn't this more of a question of responsibility? Everybody is avoiding responsibility, trying to take as much power as they can, but without actually having responsibility so they can load and lead the question as much as they want and and yeah completely weigh one side down and then uh, absolve themselves of responsibility absolutely so at this point even the even the galactic president can go well we all know that i don't have any real power right Mm. and then when they track it down the the guy that's actually in charge of the universe can go well i don't actually know anything about the universe so i don't have any real power and as usual the people that advise and influence are the ones that are in the shadows this could be reading too much into it um but that's what we're here to do yeah <laughs> it's i mean i mean it, it's very interesting i like the man in the shack uh, and i think you're supposed to like the man in the shack and i think that's a wonderful um turning of the head of when like many sci-fi things you find out who's really ruling it all and they're utter monsters and it's uh, it's a man that's nice to a cat, yeah. Um, which is which which is absolutely wonderful. But when it comes to, I, I think the the question of responsibility is a very interesting one. John, have you got any other readings of this that I, I'm missing? Well, I just um, 
and now you've as you've been talking about the the way people uh, try to shift responsibility for the things that they're actually doing onto other people um is Amber Rudd actually your MP, Danny? No. Oh, no, she's Hastings, isn't she? So you, just the, the 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 thread that she did just before she um, finally got angsted, in which she said uh, it, it was a four-part four thread, and one of them was, I didn't see the leaked document, although it was copied to my office, as many documents are. Um, you know, that kind of <laughs> that kind of like, yeah, you know, no, that totally came across my desk, but no, I totally didn't look at it. Like, no, come on. Um that the whole of the last sort of two or three weeks, uh, you've you've seen that kind of trying to shift blame and responsibility around, um, and we'll continue to see it for a, for a very long time. I mean, if you follow any of the machinations of what's going on with people trying to oust Trump and Trump trying to stop people from ousting him, you can see that as well. You know, there's all this nonsense with his 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 fixer, his bag man, who's been doing all the stuff so that he doesn't have to and they're pretending that he's a lawyer and so then they can do client privilege and he can, you know, it's all, this is what people do anyway. Um, and so uh, the man in the shack is, uh, is a nice observation of that uh, devolving of responsibility um, because as you say, it's the person who frames the question as, as we learn through deep thought, you know, um, if you ask the question wrong, then... <laughs> Then you're not going to get the answer that you want. And you're going to have to go and try and frame the question again. So the the you know um, what's it garbage in garbage out mark mm-hmm. is that the expression? Mm-hmm. So if they're bouncing everything through this person, they're only going to get the answer to the questions that they're asking anyway. Um, and um, yeah, absolutely, everybody uh, in power plays a game where they are going to get their ends without ever being held responsible for them. It's also nice morally that everyone can kind of. Um, justify it to themselves, not let alone other people, by yes. shifting the blame to to one other, and, and that obviously allows you to do the most monstrous things in history. Um, yeah, so so it, it it's deep. It's like that's that's great about Adams. That like it's obviously, um, I doubt whether he was thinking so deep into it, but obviously his brain was framed in such a way that that like there were references to it and those were questions that maybe he wasn't asking explicitly but uh, are implicit in the themes that he was um, slipping in. Indeed. Uh, And now, let's celebrate the man who brought Zaphod Beeblebrox to life. Mark Wing-Davey played Zaphod in the radio and TV series. Does anyone else know what else he's been in? Not really. Um... No. (laughs) No, I I tried to... Has he been mostly a star of stage and radio looks like he's done a lot of voiceover stuff yes um he he was he did a bit in the bill um and absolutely fabulous but he hasn't worked hugely since um the sort of mid to late 90s how do you go from being in hitchhikers right as as a lead character to them being in the bill that's the that's backwards unless, unless he was pc stamp <laughs> that's backwards because what everybody does is they do a bit on the bill mm-hmm. like legolas from lord of the rings was on the the bill and holby city and stuff before he was legolas from lord of the rings um that's the way you're supposed to do it you're supposed to do the bill once on the way up not on the way down was he was he like a british rick moranis did he give give it up to be a family I, um, I, i'm gonna say something cruel i don't think he's um of that caliber um, because part part of my my issue um, mm. is he was all right as 
Zaphod. Oh, well, okay. Be, be fairer than that. He was very good as Zaphod in the first radio series. Um, okay. And then sort of forgot how to do the voice. Uh, and in all subsequent series, he basically forgot how to do the voice and did him as a sort of weird American. Um, so the first series, he was this kind of, yeah, cool, slightly... You know, maybe there's there's a bit of a twang somewhere every now and again, but basically that's your Zaphod. And then, well, like Paul McCartney, yeah, so like <laughs> kind of like <laughs> a little bit of uh, yeah, a little bit of uh, thumbs aloft. Uh, who's the who's the fool on the hill? Um, yeah. So, but he was w- w- when it got into subsequent series, um, mm. he sort of did this not very good weird transatlantic uh faux american thing which wasn't very good and kind of felt weird and you know having it's probably something no one else has really or not many people have really observed but i certainly remember having listened to both series back to back because you know i I didn't really make much of a distinction between the two series because i just got the whole lot i think on cassette uh from a friend and so when it rolled into the second series i sort of noticed it straight away because i'd only been listening to episode six of the previous one about 30 seconds ago and so when you hear that voice uh it's 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 a little bit odd um and so i yeah i i don't think he was necessarily a great mover and shaker um i think uh simon jones you know we, we saw him do a few things but i think he he kind of does one thing and he he does that one thing very well. Whereas you look at someone like Jeffrey McGiven, who we've talked a lot about um, in previous episodes, you know, is is a good bit more versatile and has continued to work fairly consistent uh, fairly consistently in radio and TV uh, ever since. I'll never forget his role as John Thorpe in Juliet Bravo. <laughs> oh, a few of us will. People today still talk about his Thorpe. Oh, oh, the magnificence of uh, of early eighties female police-based dramas he he will go down in the hall of records which um did he do both the heads on the tv yeah well well no he sorry did. no i don't know why i said yep yeah, straight away no it was a plastic uh, papier mache head do you, you don't like you, you don't like the heads do you mark no i think they're brilliant on the tv they're yeah they're nicely shit they're just the right amount of shit i didn't want any amount of shit that's that. That was my thing. But it's kind of like the, the the good thing that the TV show adds to the whole thing is that it references shit sci-fi that mm. was around before it. It kind of is that like the day the Earth stood <laughs> still. Um, aliens are silver foil with uh, going beep boop. Kind of just that nicely, nicely, just nicely shit. I mean, I think Danny. I think don't think it references it. I think it is it. I think that's 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 the the limit of what they can achieve and the aesthetic they can create. I don't I don't think they were they were like, well, yeah, you know, we could we could make this look considerably better, but no, it let's was, just dial it down. Yeah, it was it was Doctor Who, but for adults. They could have made it a lot better, but it broke. Oh, the head. Yeah, it used to be a lot more functional than it actually ended up, but it ended up broke uh, breaking, and they went. Oh, well, okay, we'll work around it. Well, I wonder what I, I wonder if um, I wonder if Douglas thought of rewriting it for TV because you know he he does rewrite to the medium of what's going on yeah. at the time. 
Um, and it, it is one of those things where if you're the special effects person and, <laughs> and the producer writing the checks, um, and it's the late seventies, early eighties, you know, seriously though, seriously though, we're going to have two heads on this guy yeah. and he's going to be, and he's going to have a lot of screen time. Yeah. Oh, let's not do it. Let's uh, let's give him another affectation. I think there's um, a, there's probably a way around it though. You could do something a little bit like what they tried to do in the film, but it didn't pull off. No, it was terrible in the film. It, was, it wasn't even close. Like I'd- it didn't it didn't make sense. Instead of having a head that flips up, you could have done. You could have implied. Uh, you you could have put him with um, uh, having wear a headpiece that has the nose and the thing on the back. Uh, and then do, you know, anytime you want to do the, um, anytime you want his, his other head to flip round, you could do some, some quick little shot, um, that, you know, some, some nice quick little animation that in our tiny little CRT screens in the seventies, we wouldn't have noticed looked janky. Um, but uh, you know, you could have done a, a flip round the head and maybe there's a slightly different voice or something. I think, I think there were creative ways around it. Um, but it, it possibly makes sense to what Danny's saying that because they thought, well, we've got a really good solution for this and then it breaks. It's like, well, yeah, we're, we're not going to completely rewrite everything. Let's just crap on with a papier-mâché head. But the elegant solution to the problem was, oh, uh, uh, we won't just get, we, we will just not give it as many lines mm-hmm. and make it canon, but it's quite sleepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, I've got another head, but it's quite sleepy, so it won't talk much. Yes. <laughs> that was that's a four AM solution. <laughs> that is a night before filming four AM yeah, solution. That is necessity. Here's a question for you, Dan. Um, in in these days of of retouching, remastering, and redoing, and doing over, and doing that sometimes selectively rather than actually remaking, would you go through? I'm going to ask each of you in turn this question. Actually, would you go through? And do a frame by frame rebuild of the head. No, not at all. Not, not at all. I love it, Mark. No, I think I think you probably leave it as is. Um, so that Danny thinks the aesthetic of everything in Hitchhikers is a one, and he wouldn't change a thing. Wouldn't change. Wouldn't change a frame. There are some really good bits to it. So the, the tension between the bits that aren't as well done in um, in in retrospect look like references. Mm-hmm. To me, they they look like references to bad sci fi, which Fucking yeah, yeah, it should be referenced to have Wi-Fi. It'd be, it'd be sad if we didn't. Do you think the movie did enough of that then? Do you think the movie did enough 70s homaginess? No, not really. Um, one of my criticisms of the movie was that it was a bit too slick. Mm. It was a bit too... Hollywood. Yeah, it was a bit too Hollywood. It's been mm. too bright in places. Mm. Like, the, the, like, we know spaceships to be industrial, horrible things. And, they're, they're, you know, they've got fucking party plants and stuff about it like um which okay maybe maybe a reference to a more corporate um it might be actually quite accurate like jeff benzos and 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 your elon musk's gonna have pipe plants and uh coffee coffee wallpaper everywhere aren't they old musky yeah old, old musky it's gonna have a he's gonna have like uh, your, your interior designed up the arse but uh, like my my spaceships in my head are all industrial horrible messes the heart of gold in the movie is quite um quite nice i, I seem to recall it, it had that it had that sort of slightly more polished but it had that kind of 80s tardis vibe um which that i think the heart of gold needs yeah you, you need those references to navigate the silliness, I feel. Mm. Well, uh, now on to a quick 
honourable mention. Marcinta Drubish is the desk bot of the Starship Titanic. If you try and ring her bell before uh, you've watched the opening credit sequence, you hear a muffled, not yet, which is nice and meta. She's very rude until you manage to secure an upgrade to a better room. Since John Bounds is the only one of us who's read the Starship Titanic book by Terry Jones, perhaps we'll do some follow-up on a later show. But for now, oh look, it's Tim from The Office. Martin Freeman plays Arthur in the film and narrated the book sequels written by Adams because Fry got dibs on the first one. I liked him in the film, but as a result of his performance in the audiobooks, I've become something of a Freeman apologist. I really like what he did with them, but I know you guys haven't listened, so... Let's instead talk about his on-screen Arthur. Um, I, I agree. I can't, I can't imagine any other actor that I'd want representing um, Englishness uh, than Martin Freeman. It, like he's, he, he's slightly more bemused by the um, than the original Arthur on screen. I feel that's because he's got the face. He's got the Tim from the Office face. Yeah, he's, he's got the bemused face rather than downright worried or or anxious. He's he's is a slightly amused by the situation and also confused. His whole face just says, hmm. Hmm. Oh, hmm. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, happening. He, he seems a lot more proactive than the, the original Arthur, which I, I kind of like. Uh, it, it actually makes him more likable than rather being a victim. He's a person that makes, you know, slightly bad decisions. Mm-hmm. I think so. Could, we, we don't, we really don't have much of a personality for Arthur. Um, even towards the later books where we find out, you know, he's happy in certain places and then becomes unhappy and um, various things. Like, we, we, we get an idea of a few of his emotions, but not really a personality. Whereas, uh, to a degree, um, Trillian notwithstanding, uh, the rest of them are kind of bubbling over with personality traits. Um and and I think that's very common with heroes in books anyways. They tend to be a little bit more of a blank canvas, I guess, for us to, to paint on. But um no, I think I think you're right, Danny, that it is nice that we, we get a bit more personality from Arthur um in, in the film. When we did the um hypothetical Arthur Dent, I did yes. put him forward, but he didn't make yes. the final cut, which is interesting. Yeah, I'm just not. looking back at the at the list of people and I still think he's better than anyone we had in that list, except for possibly Danny Dyer. <laughs> <laughs> Never could get it out of first days, you slag. <laughs> I'm about to meet the universe's worst battle robots. What? You mean to tell me <laughs> aliens exist? Fuck. Blow my nut, man. You just blow my nut, you have. <laughs> I'll never forget the day them slags blew up the earth. <laughs> still can't get me head around it. <laughs> Uh, the list, the list that we had for hypothetical Arthur Dent casting was Matthew Freeman not making not Matthew Freeman Martin Freeman Martin Freeman yep. what's his name Martin Freeman Tim from the Office Martin Freeman so apologies to uh, leading British fan studies scholar Matthew Freeman who I've just incorrectly <laughs> name checked there uh, <laughs> hi there hi um, um, uh, friend friend of the show I don't know if he listens I, I, he's a Facebook friend of mine does that count he's a friend of the show hi hi Mo- hi, hi Matthew. Moving on, um, we had Arthur Darville, yep. Matt Smith, Simon Pegg, Danny Dyer, and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, that's a clickbait <laughs> one. That one, that's a clickbait one. Um, I still, I'd still take Freeman over over those. Pe- Pegg and and Freeman occupy the same space, right? Broadly speaking, Freeman does does exasperated face better. Um, Pegg looks angrier. Yeah, I, I yeah, like in my in my brain, 
any role that they each one of them are going up for could be replaced by the other one. I think Peg can play slightly more, not necessarily alpha, but a a he has a a personality type that's more leading. You know, mm-hmm. if you think of mm-hmm. um, certainly the the um, Shaun of the Dead, he's not an alpha male, but he is um, more of a of a leader and. Um, Freeman is more of a follower. I, I think we should tell people to go back and listen to episode one if they've not ever listened to it, because I think that that they'd be interested in finding out more about our uh, Netflix casting. I uh, I completely agree, and you can also, if you want to uh, catch up on any of the polls, you can um, go to btlpodcast.com and click on the blog, uh, and you'll see, um, as well as uh, some of our nice writing, you'll also see uh, our polls. Um, you, I mean, you could vote for them now, but we've already made our decision, and now to what might possibly be termed the main event. Life. Now talk to me about life. Marvin, the paranoid android, has a brain the size of a planet and flat-topped triangular red eyes. He waits over 500,000 million years for Zaphod and the gang after he helped them escape on Frogstar World B, or Magrathir, delete as appropriate. He lost one of his legs in the crash of the disaster area stunt ship and later landed on Squant Shell Zeta, where his other leg was taken by the cricket robots. Um, and where we later learn uh, it is the silver bale from the wicket key. He also knows the square root of minus one. Gents, anything I've missed? I, I wanted to talk about this last week, um, but uh, this is probably a more cromulent time to talk about it. I want to talk about how Marvin... The paranoid android is constantly misdiagnosed. Yeah, he's not paranoid. Um, Everyone hates him. Yeah, he, at no point is he paranoid mm-hmm. in the whole thing, um, and he's not even that android. Ooh. he's a robot, but he's not—he's not really that android. Uh, a robot, uh, an android is a robot that's uh, humanoid in uh, in appearance, and in no iteration had, could you look at a silhouette of Marvin and go. Yeah, that's a human. Um, so yeah, so paranoid android. Can I? Okay, you can you can argue with me. No, I'm not going to argue. Um, all I will say is, and I, I don't get to do this often. I wonder if we are le- uh, reading a little bit too much into that. The name paranoid android has become a thing, and I think a lot of that is because uh, some band that long-haired people like in the '90s. Uh, used it as a as an album title or whatever. Um, but I think it, it, it was actually only ever used once, and it was a Ford Prefect throwaway line. And there are actually quite a few other Ford Prefect throwaway lines. It must be Marvin, the paranoid android. Space. Co- and I don't think there's ever any because they call him a robot in, in any of the in every other uh, time that they refer to him. I believe they they call him a robot, and he refers to himself as a robot. So I really think actually. As much as I agree with you that if it were a diagnosis, it was it was wrong. I think it was just ah, those are two words that rhyme, and it's the seventies. Android, it's fine. <laughs> okay, I'm pretty sure also that he's referred to more than once as manically depressed. What are you supposed to do with a manically depressed robot? You think you've got problems? What are you supposed to do if you are a manically depressed robot? No, don't try and answer that. I'm fifty thousand times more intelligent than you, and even I don't know the answer. Yeah, which manic depression um, was at that time um, the diagnosis for something that we call bipolar disorder now which means that you swing from high to low absolutely marvin doesn't swing from high to low no. he stays he doesn't he stays swing low, from high so. to anything he doesn't know he, he stays yeah he stays in a very steady misery and so yeah the the only 
the the only diagnosis that should stick <laughs> is the depression, and yeah. I'm not sure that he is depressed. Oh, maybe you're not depressed. Maybe everyone around you is a dick. Ah, uh. like he like uh, th- there's there's a difference between reactive depression, whereas you uh, react to the circumstances that you're in yes. at the moment. Yes and feel sad because of it and feel listless and like you can't do anything because life's pretty shit for you Mm -hmm. and and depression where you get those feelings despite despite the circumstances of the world yes and sometimes they overlap Mm -hmm. but when you think about it and it's all to do with adams's really interesting questioning of like what it is to be human what it is to have ai what it is to have intelligence Mm -hmm. and if you do have the brain the size of a planet and it's never challenged you are going to have reactive depression if you never get to fulfill your potential you are going to have depression if you live in a capitalist society that only works you to the minuscule amount to get what you need to live you are going to be feel like shit yeah so he's not depressed he's just incredibly smart and never challenged and uh, he has reacted depression at best. That is my thesis. I am willing to hear an antithesis. I was just wondering if that was your um, school report. <laughs> He's not disruptive. He just needs to be challenged more. <laughs> uh, my school report was more like, uh, he thinks he's an adult. He doesn't really respect the fact that I'm a teacher. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I called my teacher by the first name when I was a kid. I was like, uh, oh, <laughs> Jeff's like, no. You don't understand the power relationship here. It's like, oh yes, I do. Yeah, I just don't want to respect it. Um, on the, uh, I, I, I think one of the interesting things that we actually don't see a lot more of um, with uh, with Arthur is uh, with Marvin is from the get go or from episode two when we first meet him in the radio series, he's really concerned about upsetting other people, and then that drops away. Um, so he has this. You know, he says, I'm not getting you down at all, am I? I? I hate to think I was getting anyone down. And that goes away and he starts to become quite sardonic and and um, and, and rude and a little bit mean to Arthur. Um, and I, I find that interesting and, and possibly plays more to what to, to what you're saying. I think undoubtedly we have put more thought into this than Douglas Adams ever did. But I don't think that makes the points we're making any less valid. Is that to do with sort of uh, if you were going to wrap a... Uh, an explanation on it that isn't just you know changing because story um <clears throat> um the the kind of parameters of his of his mission are changed um so he's kind of like this new he's he's the robot on board this newly commissioned spaceship and that's got a thing to do and then people come and disrupt it uh, and he's kind of clinging on to the protocols and then eventually he goes okay those protocols are bullshit now what i'd kind of like to think is that he made friends and you're able to be more yourself with friends rather (laughs) than what you're expected to be yeah it it does doesn't that make you feel a little bit better about the whole relationship what what ends what ends up what what, what, how does marvin end up at the end of the series i I really he haven't read the the last yeah um and he 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 dies in book four he does when him and or went sorry when arthur and fenchurch take him to see the Quinulus Quasgar Mountains uh, to see the the forty foot high letters uh, in fire that um, were God's last message to His creation. Um, so Arthur uh, Marvin sees that 
that that stuff because he, he's basically being held up by them. His eyes aren't working anymore, um, and then he crumples and then he and then he dies. Only recently been uh, been beaten by the robot in Rogue One, dying in terms of upsetting robot deaths. To be honest. Well, that's about it for the show. Thank you very much for listening. Um, do let us know what your thoughts are on Arthur. If you've got anything else to add to the discussion, uh, then you can tweet us at BTL Podcast. And uh, while we're speaking of Twitter, you can follow Danny at Probably Drunk. John is at John Hickman. And I am at I am Stedman. We will be back next week and we will have some special announcements coming very soon to people who might be in our sort of local vicinity-ish. So, yes, stay subscribed. We will find you. Until next week, share and enjoy. Mark Wing Zavi played Zaphod in the. I think I just said Zavi. Mark Wing is yep. like Zavid Bowie. Zavid. That's Bowie. Zavid Bowie. Zavid. I was. I was. Oh, that was Australian. Like, fucking cut that out. Zavid Bowie. <laughs> right. Cool, Here am I floating in a tin can far above <laughs> the planet Earth is blue. And there's nothing I can do. <laughs> oh, Surely no. planet Earth is blue. <laughs> blue? And there's nothing I can do? It's true. <laughs>